Good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? This is our second question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is the third question. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This morning... As I mentioned, we see these three questions in verses 3, verses 7, and verse 16. These kind of break up our text into three sections, and Jesus gives three mini-sermons in response to these three questions. The most important of these questions, though, the key question in all of this is in verse 3. I want to read it for us again. John sends his disciples... This is John the Baptist. He's been put in prison by Herod. We'll learn more about that later in Matthew. John, in prison, sends his disciples on his behalf and asks this question. Verse 3. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Does that strike you as strange coming from John the Baptist? This is the guy who, in the book of John, we read about saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who baptized Jesus, said it is the Son of God, saw the dove descend on Jesus. And yet he asked this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Why would John be asking this kind of question? That should be flagging in our mind right now. Why on earth would John, the one who should be the one that's like the most sure that this is the Messiah, why would he be asking this question? Turn back with me for a second to Matthew 3. Let's look at what John thought of when he thought of Messiah. Matthew chapter 3. We could read a bunch of it, but let's just start for the sake of time in verse 10. John is rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they come to his baptism. And what does he say to them? Chapter 3 verse 10. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who is the one coming after me, as John says? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And what does he expect the Messiah to bring? An axe to cut down trees, a winnowing fork, which is for separating the wheat and the chaff, and fire to cleanse God's people. He believes that the Messiah, when he comes, will bring this kind of intense judgment. How does that compare to what Jesus has been doing? We just got done looking at a series of narrative, right? A series of stories containing ten miracles. Let's think about what Jesus did in that time, right? What did he do? He cleansed those who were far from God. He healed even his enemies, right? He touched people who were considered untouchable. He consorted with enemies and outcasts. He forgave sins. He's gathering wheat, but it's not the kind of wheat that the Jews would have thought belonged in the kingdom, right? He's being accused of being friends of sinners and tax collectors, not the cream of the crop of Jewish society. Where's the fire? Where's the axe? Instead of cutting down trees, Jesus has been restoring them. This did not seem to fit with what John thought the Messiah would bring. I'm not saying that John was wrong, so don't hear me saying that. It's not that John thought something and then something else was actually true. But John did not understand the comprehensive nature of what it meant for the kingdom of heaven to come. John saw in part, but he didn't see the whole picture until the Messiah was actually here. Jesus, as the whole picture, is showing what actually happens when the Messiah comes. Restoration comes to God's people. John is looking at this and saying, this doesn't seem to make sense. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He had unmet expectations. Furthermore, if you just think about John and where he is right now, he's in prison. When the Messiah comes, God's prophets shouldn't be in prison. They should be up there with him reigning, right? Instead, King Herod is still on the throne And so John begins to doubt. I think it's important for us as we look at Matthew 11, verse 3, and John's question, to actually read it as genuine doubt. Some would say that John had no doubt, but he was asking for the sake of his disciples. I don't think that's true. I think John was in prison, seeing the circumstances around him and saying, Jesus, why aren't you doing anything about this? And then asking, are you the one? Are you, is it really you? Did I, did I misread that? Was I wrong? John brings his doubt to Jesus with an honest question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we wait for another? And notice how gently Jesus responds. He doesn't rebuke John or his disciples. But notice what he does. Verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. As John brings his doubts, Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. He's pointing to his words that he's proclaiming and his deeds that he's doing. Notice it's his deeds that he was doing in verse 2 that even prompted this question in the first place, right? Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent his disciples to ask him this question. And Jesus points them back and says, listen to my message and look at what I'm doing. Hear and see. And he's telling these disciples to report back to John because John is stuck in prison. Bring this news of what you hear and what you see. My words and my deeds. Jesus invites John to hear and see. And that begins his first mini sermon. In verse 4, he says, go and tell John what you hear, first of all. He's calling the disciples to tell John to consider what his message is. Remember what John's message was in in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 2. Verse 1, even. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was he preaching? Verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Jesus' message? If you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Verse 17, Jesus is saying the same thing. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is calling the disciples to tell John to pay attention to the fact that their message is the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As John elaborated on the implications of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he was emphasizing was the judgment that would come when the king comes and finds a bunch of rebels who refuse to submit to his will. There will be fire. There will be winnowing forks. There will be axes. There will be judgment. What what does Jesus say when he elaborates on this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? We see in the Beatitudes, right? As Jesus begins elaborating, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how Jesus elaborated on the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven means that God's people can finally, when they repent, turn to him genuinely and truly and be restored. Jesus brings mercy that's not opposed to judgment. But John did not recognize that this mercy was going to precede judgment in a particular way. These are not contradictory messages. And we can tell that by the way Jesus elaborates on his deeds. Notice he says in verse 4, tell John what you hear. And he says, tell John what you see. His words and his deeds. And his deeds prove that he is the Messiah. Jesus says, tell John what you see, right, in verse 4. And then he elaborates on that in verse 5. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's not just a list of the stuff Jesus has been doing, right? Like if we, if we were only familiar with the book of Matthew, it might seem like just a list of stuff that Jesus has been doing. But this is a very specific 
list. This is a very important list. It is a list that is actually pulling from several places in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, particularly in chapters 35 and 61, these things are referenced. Listen to what Isaiah 35, 4-6 says. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Notice, eyes of the blind opened, ears of the deaf unstopped, lame man leaping, tongue of the mute singing. Or Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Notice again, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What does Jesus say? The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is drawing together the images of Isaiah, the images of the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes to rescue and redeem his people. And he is drawing those together in such a way that reflects what he's been doing, showing that this day is here, that God is doing this. Notice, though, if you heard in those verses what Jesus didn't mention. Isaiah 35, for example, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Or Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, when he's drawing John's disciples and John, by extension, in to look at his deeds, is highlighting all of the restoration that he's doing, and he's leaving out the vengeance aspect. But that does not mean that the vengeance aspect will not come. We hear over and over in Christ's preaching the warning against those who refuse to repent, refuse to come to Christ, refuse to turn and embrace the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is demonstrating by his words and by his deeds that what it means for the kingdom of heaven to come initially to God's people is all of this restoration and this refreshment. It's once again an opportunity for the people of God to respond to the mercy of God, right? Over and over, God does this. He brings restoration and rescue to his rebellious people and offers them the opportunity to repent and to turn to him. And Jesus is once again doing this. That's why he's sending his disciples out, not to everybody, but to the lost sheep of Israel initially. To proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Come and experience blessing and restoration. Come and experience life. John was wrong only in the sense that he did not see that this restoration, this period of life-giving, would characterize the Messiah's ministry as well as the day of vengeance that will one day come. We see the day of vengeance because we have the whole scriptures to help us in things like Revelation when Jesus comes with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay his enemies riding on a war horse. 
But we see all through the stories of the gospel how Jesus comes not on a war horse, but on a donkey, offering terms of peace. John didn't get this. It was surprising to him. And so he had expectations of the Messiah that were off, that were not quite correct. And so as he faced these unmet expectations, he was filled with doubt. Are you really the one? Is this really what's happening? Jesus takes this opportunity, though, to not only say, look at my words, look at my deeds, look at me. I am the Messiah by what I'm doing and saying. But he actually then says, not only am I the Messiah by what I'm doing and saying, but because of John, who John is, I am the Messiah. And he, gives this op- he takes this opportunity to have a second mini-sermon to the crowd around him, asking them a question. Look with me at verse 7. John's disciples are going away, and here's what we have. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? In other words, who is John? Jesus is going to talk about who John is, but what we'll see is he's actually, by talking about who John is, by implication, he's talking about who he is. He's teaching about himself. So he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? And he asks him, a reed shaken by the wind, someone who's unstable and blown every direction, or someone in soft clothing? No, you went out to see a prophet. They know what to expect from a prophet. They know that he's going to be a little rough around the edges. They know that he's going to be a little wild and crazy. Jesus says, you went out to see a prophet. But notice, he adds, in verse 9, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. More than a prophet. You went out to see a prophet, but you did not realize that you were seeing more than a prophet. That's what Jesus is saying here. John is indeed more than a prophet. Notice in verse 10, Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, you won't find this exact quote in the Old Testament because Jesus is actually bringing together two texts, one from Exodus 23 and one from Malachi 3. In Exodus 23, God is promising to send his messenger before Israel to lead them into the promised land, to send an angel to go before them, to lead them into the land and life. And then in Malachi 3, God is promising that he will send his messenger to prepare the people for when he returns to judge them. And Jesus is bringing these two things together and saying, look, John is a messenger. Come to prepare God's people to enter into true life and come to prepare them for judgment that is coming. John's coming, Jesus says, represents a massive sea change or movement in the plan of redemption. Notice in verse 12. We have this cryptic saying, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I'm still not entirely sure what that means. But I think we can see something helpful from there, which is from the days of John the Baptist until now. In other words, the kingdom of heaven has, I think what Jesus is saying, suffered this opposition that we're seeing from the days of John the Baptist until now. Something started with John the Baptist that is different, that is changed. Or look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
With John, there is something that has come that has changed. John was not just another prophet in the long line of prophets. John is the prophet that is preceding the one who is to come. That's what Jesus is getting at. uh, Jesus even says this explicitly when he calls John Elijah. He says, if you are willing to accept it, verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come. This refers to the expectation at the end or the last book of the 12 prophets, the last book being Malachi. It's the last book in our English Bibles. And it ends with this expectation of the Lord sending the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The Lord will send his prophet Elijah. And so that's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene and the Pharisees come and visit him and John, they ask all these questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? That's referring to Moses. They were expecting that these messengers would once again come and preceding the restoration of God's people, the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is saying, this is happening before your very eyes. John himself is the one who comes before. Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater. If John is the one who comes before, then who is the one that comes after John? It's the one you're waiting for. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. If John is the one sent to prepare your way, who is your? Who is you? It's the Messiah. It's God himself come incarnate in the flesh to rescue and redeem his people. If John is the greatest, as Jesus says, there's no one greater born of men, or born of women, excuse me. Truly I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's not meant to kind of encourage you that you're better than John the Baptist. What that is meant to do is to say, the least one in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How much more the king who brings the kingdom of heaven? Right? If John the Baptist is the greatest that ever was, and even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him, how much more, we don't have words to describe it, is the king? If John is Elijah, then after him comes the day of the Lord, the Lord come to rescue and redeem his people, the Messiah. And Jesus is saying by describing who John is to this crowd that he is the Messiah, Jesus himself. Notice, in giving these many sermons, Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He calls for a response from those listening. Notice verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's where we drew out the main point, right? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed, happy, full of life, experiencing shalom, All of those things we talked about in the Beatitudes, all of these things are true of the one who is not offended by the Messiah coming. What does Jesus mean by offended? One of the ways we could think about that is in Matthew 5, when he talks about if your eye offends you or if your right hand offends you. I think most English translations translate something along the lines of cause you to sin or cause you to stumble, right? Cut it off and throw it into the fire so that you don't end up in the fire yourself. That's the, that's the kind of idea behind it. If he causes you to stumble, now how can, how can Jesus, the Savior, cause you to stumble, right? I think we take that and we combine it with the idea in Matthew 13. After Jesus is teaching all of these parables... 
He then comes to his hometown, and how is he met? What is the response? Those around him say, where did he get this? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't this this Mary's kid? They are offended by him, the text says, because of where he comes from and who they think he is. And they're offended because he is claiming to be someone that they don't think he is. He's claiming to be the Messiah, and they don't buy it. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who does not reject me, who does not see me not fit into their notions of what the Messiah is and say that can't possibly be the Messiah because he doesn't fit. Jesus calls for response also in verse 14 and 15. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a statement of a prophet who says, if you have ears to hear, hear. And often it's said to people who don't have ears to hear as a way to drive home the point. Like, you ought to listen to this, and I know you probably won't. Jesus uses it that way in Matthew 13 as he's calling his, the crowd to hear his teaching and parables. And he's blessing the disciples because they have ears to hear. They are not offended by the message. They're able to receive it. The response that is called for in light of these mini sermons is belief. Belief that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Belief that Jesus is the Messiah, even if he doesn't fit into our preconceived notions of what the Messiah ought to be. Jesus goes further and rebukes this current generation, right? This is his third mini sermon and his third question. He asks this question in verse 16, to what shall I compare this generation? It's a rhetorical question because he's going to tell us. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, it's a generation of people who are disappointed and disillusioned in Jesus and John because they will not do what they want them to do. Notice, it doesn't really matter what they do because John is an ascetic. He came neither eating nor drinking. And what do they say? He has a demon. And then Jesus comes bringing the life and restoration of the kingdom and feasts with sinners. And what do they say? He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a pig and a drunk. It doesn't matter what they do. The problem is that Jesus and John, as God's messengers, are not fitting into the expectations of the current generation, of those who they come to. This language of this generation is used intentionally by Jesus because it's used all throughout the scripture to call our attention to God's people at a particular time and in a particular place. We see this language again in Hebrews 3, where we're told that the previous generation that passed under the cloud, that passed through the wilderness with God leading by pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, That that generation had a hardened heart, chose to harden their hearts in the wilderness and reject God, chose to be offended by him. And the current generation is warned, do not harden your hearts like those in the wilderness, right? And yet here we see an indictment of this generation that saw Jesus in person and experienced these miracles. We see that most of the crowd treated him like a puppet that they wanted to control. That they wanted to play 
a marriage song and they wanted him to pretend like it was a wedding. Or they wanted to play a funeral song and for him to pretend like it was a funeral. They wanted to control Jesus to have him meet their expectations. The response of this generation is the same as the response of that generation in the wilderness. It's Israel again repeating her own history. This is God again bringing an offer of repentance and reconciliation and restoration to his people as he comes himself. Like in the parable of the vineyard owner, he sent his very son. And what do they do? They think, let's kill him and take his inheritance. They think, we want you to dance for us. We don't want to respond with obedience to you. Israel's continued hardness of heart demonstrates a need for a merciful Messiah. If Jesus had come like John expected him to, bringing an axe and fire, there would have been no hope for anybody. But Jesus comes bringing this offer repeatedly to Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and bringing this offer by extension to all of creation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want us to take a few moments in closing to think about how we ought to think about this story. Because these things are written for our instruction. It's not just for John's disciples that we see this list of things in Isaiah that Jesus is doing, proving he is the Messiah. It's not just for the crowds that Jesus is describing John the Baptist. Matthew is writing down the gospel, and he's choosing which stories to include and which sayings of Jesus to include. He's got more material than he could possibly include, and he included this for our instruction. I believe it helps us to see that often our expectations of who Jesus is or ought to be as Messiah are different from who he actually is as Messiah. That sometimes we bring expectations to Jesus that he then fails to meet. Not because he is a failure, but because our expectations are not correct. We bring expectations to Jesus that he does not meet. And we respond then by being offended. We respond then, possibly with doubt... But more often, that doubt can fester and turn into blind unbelief and eventually disdain and dismissal. In other words, we can end up having the same response as the crowds to Jesus today as they did back then. We can end up saying, we played a song for you and you didn't do what we wanted. We came to church, Jesus, repeatedly and you didn't do what we wanted. We read our Bibles and you didn't do what we wanted. We, were, we, we pursued godliness and you didn't do what we wanted. We have expectations of Jesus, and sometimes he does not meet those expectations. Most notably, when he doesn't dance to our tune. He doesn't give us the healing that we want. He doesn't give us the prosperity that we want. He doesn't make everything in life better instantly. I think sometimes we can have unmet expectations when it comes to Jesus, because we don't believe that we ought to suffer, but Jesus calls us to suffer. Right? Like we talked about last week. This is certainly one of the reasons Matthew wrote this for the early church. 
Wrapping their own minds around a suffering Messiah took a lot of effort because it was completely unexpected. I think sometimes we grow disappointed in Jesus because we are disappointed with his bride. We expect that Jesus will magically transform us all into saints, and then we get disappointed and discouraged when we sin against one another. That can lead to resentment against Jesus and lead to believing that he is not who he ought to be. I think one of the biggest challenges for us that lead to being disappointed in Jesus is because Jesus is relatively boring. You might think, what do you mean Jesus is boring? And what I mean by that is what a good pastor friend of mine calls boring orthodoxy. That life with Jesus, sanctification, is lived out in the ordinary. We expect when we come to Jesus and encounter him for everything to be fireworks and butterflies and stars and whatever. And what we find is that life is still relatively the same and that we still have the same struggles and we still experience the same heartaches and we still have the same responsibilities. Those don't just vanish because we came to Jesus and Jesus, we feel like, is relatively boring. He's not. We know that. But we can feel that way. We can have our expectations unmet by Jesus because we think he ought to be and do something that he is not. But it's not because Jesus himself is insufficient. Right? It's not because our expectations are so high and grand and Jesus is just not living up to them. It's because our expectations are so small, so narrow, so self-centered... And Jesus far exceeds anything we could ask or think of him. Jesus himself is so much bigger, so much greater, so much more magnificent than we would give him credit for. That our expectations are unmet and they seem really significant in our eyes. And yet they are far pale. Uh, They pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Friends, I think what we need to learn from this text is that we are foolish and sure to err if we make following Jesus contingent on him meeting our expectations. When we do that, we create a Messiah in our own image. And then we get mad when the true Messiah doesn't fit our image, doesn't fit our idol that we have made. What we ought to do instead is ask the same question that John asks. The most important question that we can ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we wait for another? And then examine Jesus' words and deeds and let ourselves be persuaded, just as John was, filled with faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and that obedience to him, life in his kingdom is the true path to life. We bring these things and then we have our expectations molded and shaped by the Messiah himself, and he'll never disappoint. This is what I believe the psalmist means when he tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart. As we delight ourselves in Jesus as the Messiah, we will find that our expectations of him are perfectly aligned with who he is, and there is nothing we seek from him that he is not able to do. That's life in the kingdom. That's life under the king. That's the life that Matthew 11 calls us to. Let's pray and ask God to help us seek that life.
Father, I, I, I thank you that you mercifully did not send your son primarily to condemn the world. In fact, just as it says in John, you did not send him to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That you sent him as Messiah, bringing life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek that life on the terms that Jesus has given us. That you would guard us from creating an idol in our own mind of a Messiah who doesn't actually exist, but we think is better. Would you help us know the true Jesus? As we journey through Matthew, would you give us more and more of a picture of who Jesus is and what he has said and done so that we may truly hope in the true Messiah and experience true life? We pray in his name. Amen.